Father, we thank you for blessing us this morning. We thank you for loving us. All we have is your love for us. All we have is you, whom of I in heaven, but you and on earth. I desire nothing besides you. There's nothing that can meet my need. There's nothing, there's nothing that can give me life. There's nothing that provides salvation and cleanses of sin. Only, only you do that. And you do that because you've loved us. We thank you and we praise you for your love. Your love so clearly and easily and accurately displayed this morning through our songs and time together in our fellowship. It's just been a sweet day, Lord. A sweet morning. And that's your grace to us. We pray and ask that in this moment you'd continue to be gracious. And you'd bless the preaching of your word. That you would pierce to our hearts and expose our faults and gently and kindly correct us. And lead us into righteousness and back into truth. And into a life that honors you. Bless the time of your word that we may meet with you and behold you and understand you and be conformed to your likeness. Do things that only you can do this morning, God, so that you only would get the glory and credit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Luke with me, if you would, please. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 54. Weren't those some wonderful songs we sang this morning? Such a privilege. Um, to be able to sing about the cross and the gospel. I hope that never becomes routine to us. I hope um, it's a thrill each and every time to be able to proclaim such truths through song lyrics. Luke chapter 22 verse 54 is not a pleasant passage. And we're going to encounter that more frequently as we enter into the Lord's trial and eventual crucifixion. Until we get to the resurrection, uh, there's some weighty things that we look at. And this is one of them. We come to a passage of Scripture that is um, difficult because we find the failing of a brother. And in his failure, we find our own failure. This is a passage where we, we should humbly and quickly identify ourselves as we consider Peter's denial. He may deny the Lord with his voice. We often find ourselves denying the Lord with our actions, don't we? Even with the desires of our hearts. So we come to this text with conviction and an honest conviction, knowing that we see ourselves in Peter's life and behavior here. Also, we come with just great uh, grief over Peter's acts uh, for his own life, his own soul and his own uh, time. But in his act of betrayal and denial, we find a glorious truth that is really a prelude to understanding the trial and crucifixion of the Lord. This passage is uniquely wedged into the narrative here of Luke's gospel. It's the last text that's going to uh, majorly focus on or involve a disciple. From this point, it will be all about Jesus on trial and all about Jesus being nailed to the cross. We don't find an, a disciple uh, referenced with significance again until John's gospel where Jesus is speaking from the cross to John and we really don't see them uh, rise up again in a prominent way until they take care of the Lord's 
body and bury him and then discover him resurrected. So this is kind of this unique passage where a, a, a shift is taking in Luke's uh, taking place in Luke's narrative here to focus primarily exclusively on Christ, but it's also wedged right into the middle between the Lord's arrest and his eventual trial, which is the most lengthy part of his whole passion narrative, his trial. And I have to ask myself, why? Why is this text wedged into this portion in this particular time in Luke's gospel? And why in God's sovereignty and providence is it so important for us to understand Peter's denial? And why is it so important that all four gospels record it? And why is it so important that it would be included in, a script, in Scripture and marked out for all eternity? There are a lot of things that happen in the time and life of Christ that are not recorded. John tells us that at the end of his gospel. He says, if all the miracles and all the things surrounding Christ were recorded, I don't think all the books in the world could contain them. So the things that are recorded are selected by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit for a very specific reason, because there are very specific texts. And why is Peter's uh, encounter and denial here so important for you and I to understand that it be included in Holy Scripture? And, and then on top of that, why is it included where it's included and how it's included? Those are all technical study questions I ask myself every week about any passage, but particularly the things we have to wrestle with this morning. And I think the answer is because Peter's denial here is a prelude, as I said, to understanding where Christ has to be before he goes to the cross. And I hope to bring that out to us this morning. Let's stop now and get to the text and actually read it. Look into verse 54 and we will read through verse 62. Talking about this group of officers as referenced in the passage before that come from the the temple even the roman soldiers and then talking about jesus verse 54 luke says then they the crowd seized jesus and led him away bringing him into the high priest's house and peter was following at a distance and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together peter sat down among them then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out. And wept bitterly. We first get the scene set for us in verse 54 and 55. The rest of our Lord by comparison is relatively anticlimactic. There's not a whole lot. It's, it's straightforward, simple in Luke's narrative. He's simply seized and led away. And he's led away to a specific location as described by Luke. The high priest's house. Caiaphas' house. Which is 
not really known where the location is at, but it, we knew what kind of structure it was like. It was a villa type structure, more like a palace. It did contain, as the text tells us, a middle courtyard. Inside the middle of the home, there would have been this outdoor, large outdoor place. And that's apparently where we find this crowd gathering. Peter is mentioned in verse 4, and he's mentioned following the Lord at a distance. And in the language, I don't think the emphasis is so much on the fact that he's following the Lord, but more so that he's following the Lord at a distance. It conveys a sense of apprehension on Peter's behalf. And we find that already taking place in his heart is this withdrawal from Jesus, not just in proximity, but in emotion and in association spiritually. Things of that nature. Well, as was custom on a cold spring night in Jerusalem, verse 55, they light a fire. And Luke begins to put, put emphasis on the fact that Peter is with this group of people who are hostile to Christ. He highlights the group ambiguously just by using words like they and them and together. And he says they sat down together, referencing this crowd. And then in Luke's style, he separates Peter from the crowd and mentions him specifically by name and says, Peter, who's not with that crowd, is yet also with that crowd and he is set down among them. It carries similarities like Psalm chapter 1 where you are now intermingled with the opposition. We could aptly say this is not just the scene setting up, but Peter now finds himself behind enemy lines. And not just behind enemy lines, but he's in some degree associating with them now. For as they sit around the fire waiting to find out Jesus' inevitable outcome, Peter is found with them. And not just found with them, but found among them. The Greek word for sat down in reference to Peter means a long exposure or a long remaining. It means that he's spending some time there. There's a sense of dwelling Coupled with that, and in the original language, it has direct connections to the phrase middle of the courtyard. It's telling us, and Luke is conveying to us, Peter is right in the middle of the crowd here. He's not off in the fringes or on the, on the sideline. He's dwelling in the midst of this group of people who has arrested Christ, holding false trial against Christ. Peter has suddenly found himself lumped in with this group, identified with this group. And before long, he will be found behaving like this group. In his situation here, he is no longer identifying with Jesus. He's identifying with this crowd that is opposed to Jesus. And he's found even desiring to blend in with them and not be noticed. Again, it's this disassociation that's taking place in both his heart and his proximity. It's in this moment Peter's apprehension begins to stir. He begins to know the crowd that he's around. He begins to formulate fear. Fear's welling up in his heart. Fear of association with Christ, fear of persecution, fear of rejection, fear of reputation, fear of danger. And it's at this point we take note, the worst night of Peter's life is taking shape. 
And it is being built upon the foundation of fear. And as believers, we ought to take note and warning. Anytime fear rises in our hearts and begins to wither away, wither away faith within us, just as it does our brother Peter here, we might easily find ourselves in the same shoes as him. In fact, I would contend, and I don't think it takes much convicting for you and I to realize that we too have denied Christ in far less pressured moments than what Peter's experiencing here. Through our actions and desires and sometimes even our words, through our fear of speaking up for Christ and standing for truth, we have done the exact same thing that Peter has done in both times in Peter's life here and in our life typically it is built upon this foundation of fear that begins to take over our faith. And when we, like Peter, take our eyes off of Christ and put them on ourselves or our situations, we are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. We are prone to deny and prone to reject and prone to hide and sink down into cowardice. Well, these things are starting to take place under the surface in Peter's life by verse 57. He's sitting around this fire with this opposition party, this this group of people who hate Jesus. They've arrested Jesus. He's now found himself right in the middle of them, lingering among them in the midst of them, lobbed in with them, and his heart is breeding fear and worry. Which leads us into verse 56, the first accusation leveled against him and the beginning of three denials. These are gut-wrenching to read, in my opinion. They're hard to get through because I so easily find myself with him, but I also so quickly sympathize with him. He's caving in to the lies of the enemy here. As I said, all four Gospels record this. It's been burned into the history of the church and we ought not neglect that fact. This is one of the few accounts that um, gets into all four Gospels. All four of them record Him denying Christ three times. Even according to the Lord's prediction. All four of them put the blame on Peter. This night is not... uh, and these denials are not a one-time moment of slipping or messing up by, by Peter. What we come to realize is they're a cognizant decision and choice of Peter to disassociate himself from our Lord. He begins by being addressed in verse 56 from this humble, unassumed servant girl. She's unnamed. All three accusers in Peter's night tonight are unnamed This particular one, we can understand her lowly state in society's eyes. Not only is she a female, but she's a servant female. She doesn't have a high standing of respect or reputation. And yet, she does two things as described by Luke. Number one, she simply is seeing him. That's casually taking notice of him in the midst of this crowd. But then two, she looks closely at him. She begins to closely scrutinize him. Examining his face, his behavior, his nervous look perhaps, and even later on his voice. And she comes to this conclusion and accuses him saying, this man also was with him. The word also might indicate that she was watching out for for followers of Christ. Looking to see if, if any were present. Only two were present, Peter and John, according to John's gospel. 
And she takes notice of Peter and says, this, this man was with him, with Christ. The phrase with him means that he was a, he's a partner with him. He's a follower of his. He's an agent in his ministry. This woman has quickly identified Peter as belonging to Jesus. The phrase with him is not simple association. The phrase she uses with him is complete and total identification with Christ. Which tells us as much as Peter wants to escape his identification with Jesus, it's now his defining characteristic. And such is the case for all Christians. Lest we buy the lie of the enemy that our brother Peter bought right here and think we can disassociate ourselves from Christ, true Christians bear that mark and cannot do it. And as much as Peter wants to hide and blend in, he cannot change who he is. All of a sudden, he finds himself on trial just like Jesus. He responds forcefully to this servant girl. He denies it adamantly saying, Woman, I do not know him. It's a simple phrase, but it has some enormous truths in it. First, Peter makes it unmistakably and unescapably personal. I do not know him. He speaks on his own behalf. And he speaks with authority. He speaks personally. And then Luke uses a word know that carries two connotations. I don't know him personally. And I don't know anything about him. That's what the word know means. I don't have a relationship with that man. I don't know anything about the person of that man. I don't know anything about the ministry of that man. Peter's denial here, right off the bat, is comprehensive in nature. And absolute in nature. In other words, he's saying in every aspect possible, in every conceivable, conceivable way, I have nothing to do with that man. It's a lie. Not only is he found lying, but more seriously, he's found comprehensively denying association with Jesus. His bold assertion of verse 33, where he says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to both to prison and to death. It has quickly and easily melted away. Lest you think your devout resolutions to follow Christ are sufficient enough Take note of Peter's life. They are not. You might make a bold resolution in one moment and with the next breath deny Christ. Such is Peter's case. James Edwards in his commentary on this verse, he said, the accusation of an unnamed, unentitled servant girl does not compare with the more powerful accusations of the Sanhedrin against Jesus. But even this test, Peter cannot withstand. Peter's denials force humility into our hearts. It proves true to the Scripture, lest we think we stand, we fall. We are creatures dependent upon the grace of Christ to stand in every way, every shape, every form, at every time. Unless you think this will never happen to you, take note and be humbled. Peter is the leading disciple and he is found here verbally denying our Lord not once, not twice, but 
three times and he does so adamantly. He does so comprehensively. But verse 58, another unnamed individual has arisen on the scene. And we have a time stamp here by Luke. It's a little later. A little bit of time has passed. And this someone else gives a much more simple, straightforward, shorter accusation to Peter. You also are one of them, he says. This particular time, this individual is directly addressing Peter. You are one of them. Deal with yourself, Peter. Give, a, give an, uh, an explanation for yourself. Give a reason why we should believe you. And Peter responds again with a very simple, straightforward answer. Again, man, I am not. Only this time, he's not necessarily focusing on his denial of Jesus per se, although that's implied. In the language, he's more precisely focusing on his denial with the other disciples. The accusation from the unnamed second individual is that you are one of them. You're in the group. You're a part of the movement. And Peter's denial now is, I am not one of them. I'm not in that Christian sect. I'm not following that way. I'm not with those group, that group of disciples and followers. Now Peter has not only denied the Lord in his relationship to Him and, his, and denied the Lord's person, and not only has he, he denied the truth about Christ, now he's denying the ministry of Christ that he has partaken in. I'm not one of them. I have not participated with them. His denial is a self-denial. Verse 59, the third accusation comes, and it's much more intense. Luke tells us another time stamp, much more time has passed, an interval of about an hour. And still another unnamed individual comes with a third accusation against Peter. The fact that an hour has passed tells us that this isn't necessarily as circumstantial as we make it. And it's not due to a singular moment. Peter's denial is consistent over a relatively long period. It's a commitment to disassociate from Christ. There's more force with this accusation. Luke uses the word insisted. This third man insists now that Peter is with Christ. He has evidence he says, this man too is a Galilean. Certainly he's been with Jesus. Mark tells us Peter gives himself away by his accent. He has a Galilean accent. This man has evidently studied Peter for some time now. Maybe an hour, maybe longer. He's examined his voice. He's examined his behavior. And he's come to this solid conclusion in his own mind that certainly, absolutely, this Galilean speaking individual follows Jesus. And just as adamantly as before in verse 60, Peter denies him. Matthew and Mark says he actually swears and curses. He's so adamant. Luke simply gives the statement, man, I do not know what you're talking about. I have no connection whatsoever here. By this third accusation, Peter understands the weight of the situation the law of God demanded that two or three witnesses must be brought against an individual for a case to be made. 
In fact, that's written in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Let me just flip back there and read it so you can understand and see it from the scriptures. Chapter 19, verse 15, the law says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If one witness would have come towards Peter, he could have maybe shaken that off. If two, still yet, he could have denied it and been believed. But three now have arisen against him. And the case has been made and it's unmistakable. Three witnesses bear a charge against Peter. And yet, instead of owning up to his relationship with Christ, he adamantly and comprehensively yet again denies Jesus. This is fear's confession in his life. Fear has led to this confession of denial. Fear has led to this betrayal of Christ. And it can lead to the same thing in our lives. By verse 61, a certain look comes Peter's way. A look from the Lord. In fact, verse 60 says, while he's still speaking, immediately a rooster crows. Before he can get the third denial out of his mouth, before it passes past his lips, this rooster is heard. The prediction of Christ has come true. Verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Christ is divinely Reigning over the whole situation. And then Luke records what nobody else records. In verse 61. The Lord turned. And looked at Peter. The most, most weighty phrase of the whole passage. The most piercing phrase of the whole passage. As we've stated all since uh, Christ entered into Jerusalem triumphantly, He's displayed and He increases His display of divine sovereignty over the whole death, the whole event surrounding His arrest, betrayal, crucifixion, and resurrection. But this, this is the most personal display of divine sovereignty over the whole ordeal. He makes eye contact with His disciple. The word that is used for turn implies a decisive action. A diligent and purposeful move. And the divinity of Christ is on display here because we consider the surroundings. There's a crowd of people around. And Peter's working his absolute hardest to blend in and not stand out. And in Christ's life, his trial is raging on around him. And yet, in the midst of all that, he breaks and makes eye contact with Peter. That's not by accident. And his gaze pierces the disciple's heart. It induces conviction. It instantly exposes Peter's sin. Christ doesn't let him escape. When the Lord turns and looks at Peter, he's now the fourth person in this passage to look at Peter and to size him up. 
Only this time, this fourth individual, Jesus himself, Peter can't escape. He can deny the servant girl and write her off as uneducated and, and unworthy of a voice. He can deny and hide from the other two people, but when Christ makes eye contact with him, he cannot hide and he cannot deny. There's no case to be made against the eyes of Jesus. He can hide from the witnesses that examine the fruit of his life, that he is actually following Jesus. But when Christ looks at him, his entire life, his entire heart is laid bare before him. There is no hiding. And with one simple gaze, Jesus conveys to this poor, broken disciple, I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know everything about you. Again, James Edwards says it's a look of judgment and grace. It's a look of condemnation and forgiveness. And such is the case with Christ. The lesson is clear here. Christ always and first looks at you with piercing conviction and exposes your sin. And if you don't believe in a Jesus who deals with your sin, you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. If you don't believe in a Jesus that lays you bare before Him, then you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. This Jesus looks at Peter in what will be his worst night of his life, a night he will never forget. And the first act is one of conviction. He lays him bare. He fillets him open. And with the piercing look of his eyes, he says, I know everything about you. This is divinity. This is the moment where Peter's soul is laid open before the Lord. And he remembers all of a sudden, in verse 61, no words are spoken, but he is reminded of the Lord saying, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Just like Judas he has betrayed Christ. Only his response is different. In verse 62, his response is worthy. He leaves and he weeps bitterly. We find here this leading apostle crushed, broken, reduced to nothing. Which is a good place to be when convicted by sin. And I would contend it's the place Christ brings all of us when convicting us of sin. Because it's in this place of brokenness that He begins to rebuild us and redeem us and establish us. Christ confronts before He heals and here He confronts Peter to the point of driving Peter out so that He Weeps hysterically. Again, this gentleman James Edwards said, the last time Peter called Jesus Lord, he swore undying allegiance. But now, when Jesus looks at him as Lord, he convicts Peter of betrayal. Well, there's one last point I would leave you here, and that's with the... the summarizing point why does all this matter and I think there's a greater fulfillment taking place here 
by this particular moment with the denial of Jesus, our Lord is left entirely alone and rejected. And I think that's the point of the passage. I don't think the point is Peter. I don't think the point of the passage is Peter's denial. Although I think there are lessons and warnings to be had there. I think the point of the passage is Jesus. And where this leaves Christ in the middle of His trial. I think it's a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Why is this passage wedged here in this moment? Why is Peter's denial so important? I don't think it's necessarily as much about Peter as it is about the fact that Christ here in this moment with these denials is totally and completely and absolutely abandoned and left alone. And he knew this would happen. He knew that he would be betrayed, not just by Judas, but by Peter himself. He knew that I'm going to stand on trial with zero support behind me. No one will rise up in my defense. In fact, there will be false accusations brought against me. I will be totally, utterly alone. In this moment, as Peter has denied Christ, the enemy has not only surrounded our Lord with a hostile crowd, and he's not only scattered his other 11 disciples, 10 disciples, but he has actually caused now the leading chief disciple, who is the most public and ardent and vocal supporter of Christ, the one who took his sword out to, to defend Christ in the face of these soldiers, he has now taken him and caused him to verbally deny Christ in front of people. There's no one left. The disciples who wanted to defend Christ in the garden, uh, they've disappeared. Our Lord is totally, completely, and utterly alone. He has been rejected by men. And not even Peter is excluded from that. Even his closest companions have deserted him. Christ must suffer and die alone. Without the aid or accompanying of any friend or group. And why must He do that? Because in suffering and dying alone, two things happen. One, He alone secures our salvation. Nobody else gets credit. He alone is the Savior. He alone is the atonement. And nobody aids Him in atoning for man's sin. And two, the other reason He must die and suffer alone, rejected by men, is to show that every human being, including Peter, is a sinner in need of a Savior. No one is on the same level as Christ. Jesus is lodged into this arrest and into this trial, and he's been separated from everybody else so that everybody would know only he can die for sinners, and everyone needs his salvation. 
he must succeed where even Peter failed. Peter's under pressure here. And under that pressure, he must make a choice to obey God or not obey God, and he fails. Christ is under much more intense pressure and must also make a choice to obey God or to fail. And he obeys God. Where Peter failed, Christ succeeds. In fact, Peter had true things said about him and still failed. Christ has blasphemies lobbied against him and he succeeds. Peter has the same question that the Sanhedrin is asking. Who is Jesus? And he responds the same way as the Sanhedrin does. He's not worth following. Jesus has the same question posed to him. Who is Jesus? And he responds with the only Savior who can die for man's sin. Our Lord is left alone here. And He's left alone here because that's how He must die. In isolation. On behalf of sinful men. Which now, because of Peter, and even before, but clearly now, includes every human being. This is important for us today because so many people fail to realize they need a Savior. They fail to realize that they are Peter in the story. And they have abandoned Christ. They've abandoned the, the will of God, the rule of God, the reign of God. And just like Peter, they've done so adamantly. They've chosen the side of hostile sinners in a hostile world instead of the side of God in Christ. And until they have the piercing eyes of Christ, look at them that leads to humble weeping. They will not know that they need a Savior. And only Christ can be the Savior. Peter's actions humble us all. They do remind us that we see ourselves in his life. But Christ's actions in looking at Peter remind us that we have a Savior who will forgive just like he forgave Peter. Again, you and I have betrayed Jesus. We have abandoned him. We have rejected him and denied him in more ways than you and I will ever really honestly know. But Christ looks at us with piercing eyes of conviction so that He might also build us back up through healing and salvation. The only requirement? Confess and believe. And if you do, Christ will welcome you back in with arms wide open. And if you have done that, if you have confessed and believed, Praise God that He was willing to suffer and die alone on behalf of sinful men. And that every time my rejection came, He welcomed me back. Lord, this is a hard passage for me. Because I see my own behavior in it. I see that I'm prone to act like Peter. I also see how alone you are. There's no one. You are, you are left totally isolated. You have your heavenly Father. You have your Spirit. You have ministering angels. But every man 
in the scene now has denied you and been found against you. And it's such an accurate picture of all of humanity. None of us were on your side. Every one of us turned and went our own way. Every one of us took our eyes off of you and put our eyes on ourselves. Every one of us looked out for our own survival. And you stood on trial alone. You were beaten alone. You were crucified alone. And you died alone. All for those sinful men like Peter and like myself, like us, who denied you and rejected you. I'm so thankful Peter's story doesn't end here, Lord. That you restore him on a beach. Calling out his love for you. And you enable him to establish the church and serve you. Such an example shows us that we too can be forgiven. Would you accomplish this work today? And drive this text home into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.